Um, this week we're starting a series in First Thessalonians. I planned it to be seven or eight weeks, but that was with me preaching like 45 to 55 minutes. So with the new 25-minute reality, it's probably going to go a little longer. I had to, I think, in our thoughts, and so I had to split this sermon in half. Um, but the main focus of First Thessalonians is the Apostle Paul is writing to believers in a situation where it's not easy to be a Christian. In fact, a situation where it's, e- it's much harder to be a Christian than it is to be in Mad- one in Madison right now. Though I don't underestimate that it can be very difficult in the passive means of difficulty that create that exists in a city like ours. Um, it's, it was very difficult for the Thessalonians, including the stealing of their property, their bringing them into courts, and even some people apparently being killed. And so the, the, the passion of the apostle is that the Christians would have a thriving, not just a faith that's holding on, but a thriving, enduring faith that is supported not just by a sense of duty, but by a sense of great faith and joy, so that a laboring kind of love is flowing out from them. And that is possible. That is, that is the inheritance that God has freely given to everybody who comes to Christ. And it's, it's your inheritance, and you can receive it and live in it, even in the midst of difficult circumstances where people are not going to cheer you on for being a believer and for living a life that is in accord with imitating Christ. And one of the themes that runs all through the book of 1 Thessalonians is imitation and example. That we imitate Christ, and Christ has those who imitate him, and then, then as we imitate him, we slowly become examples that a new generation of believers imitate. Because word is not enough. Word orders things, but life is way too complicated to figure it out just by teaching. Teaching is— but with words is too rudimentary a form of communication and inculcation. Imitation of a person's whole life is much more complex and yet much more easy to take in. And because of that, the gospel has always gone forward with the word of the message of the gospel and the imitation of the examples Christ provides to those who believe. So I want to take a little time this morning before we get into the passage itself to just talk about the idea— of imitation, because it's fallen a little bit on hard times in people's minds. Um, Most people have heard the saying, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, right? And it's important to recognize that imitation actually is the foundation of all human learning. It's the most common way to learn. It's the most effective and efficient way to learn. We learn more through imitation than we learn through anything else. And we're—the reason we don't know that is because it's so intuitive to us that we're mostly unconscious of doing it. Have you ever had somebody make fun of you because you were like copying someone else and you didn't realize you were doing it? I'm, a, I'm like a preacher copier. If I listen to somebody too long, I start sounding like them. So there was a while where I sounded like Tim Keller, and then another time where I like sounded like D.A. Carson. And I just kind of—my wife was like, you, you kind of sound like D.A. Carson now. And I had to like intentionally stop because I naturally was like, well, I like what that's happening there. And I naturally imitated it without even really knowing it, especially when I was a younger preacher. Um— so, so um, George Bernard Shaw, whose best ideas came from when he was imitating people, um, once said that it wasn't just—imitation wasn't just the sincerest form of flattery. It was the sincerest form of learning, right? However, um, people don't really like—there's some people who don't really like that, right? Obviously, um, a lot of celebrities find it really annoying. Oscar Wilde, who was an author, said, imitation is the sincerest compliment mediocrity can pay to greatness. So you'd only, you'd only imitate somebody if you were terrible. And if you were very mediocre. So in one sense, he's like saying, yes, it's a compliment, but it's a compliment of small people, right? Um, The music artist Pink said about this, she's like, I don't find 
imitation flattering, I find it annoying, right? And a lot of older siblings kind of feel that way about younger siblings. Um, also, um, people who are innovators and developers find imitation really annoying and frustrating. For example, um, the Swedes are sort of the forest masters. Like the Swedes, the Germans, and the Canadians. Like they are all about how to cut down trees and stuff. And yet, after a hundred years of developing the best nearly perfect chainsaw, um, China just got one and just like made a copy of it for half the price. And it, it not only functions pretty much the same um, at a slightly lower level of quality, but it, they made it to look identical, right? And so like, well, is that imitation or is that theft or are they the same? Right? But one of the reasons why intellectual property law exists and why some countries don't abide by it is because of two competing problems. Innovation takes an enormous amount of work and everybody imitates what they like immediately. So without telling people they can't imitate it, after you go through all the process of creating a new innovation, people will imitate it immediately because that's how the world works. People see stuff that they find valuable and they imitate it. Sometimes they don't know they're doing it. Sometimes they do know they're doing it, right? But it's not just innovators and developers and celebrities that are annoyed by the idea of imitation being fundamental to human life. But like all people who find themselves in a place where they feel educated and sophisticated, especially if they're younger, they tend to feel like imitation is the opposite of being original or being yourself. And since authenticity is defined as being yourself as opposed to being like other people, right? Even though younger people tend to be the most conforming generation of human beings in every generation, they tend to think of themselves as the least conforming and the most original. Because they see themselves over against older generations, they don't realize they're exactly like each other, right? And so you get this attitude in all generations of people, especially the more sophisticated and artistic they think they are, where they'll be like, I'm, I'm original. I'm not an imitator. And the, the problem is, is that the more you think that, the more controlled you are by the unconscious imitations of your life rather than the conscious and chosen imitations of your life. So there's this, there's this funny scene from um, the Devil Wears Prada, which is a 2006 film. Um, but you can still find this scene on YouTube where there's this, gir there's this girl and she's like wearing this blue sweater and she's like making fun of the, the fashionistas who are deciding the next clothing line. And the lady who's in charge is like, okay, listen, you think that you just got that sweater from somewhere? But she's like, listen, um, it's not blue, it's cerulean. And we picked it out in 2000. Like, and she goes through this whole thing of like, who chose that sweater for her? She's like, and so you picked it out and you liked it when it was chosen for you by the very people in this room that you're making fun of. You imitated us, and you don't even know it. And the more you think you're original, and the more you think that that's somehow against imitation, and the more then you don't want to imitate others, the more a slave you are to imitations you don't even understand you're imitating because it's so intuitive to you. That is general culture, media, peer pressure, all the worst kinds of imitation, rather than the directly chosen forms of imitation that you choose based on the value of what that is offering. Right? One of the examples of, um, of where this doesn't happen as much as in sports. Sports ain't having this. Like, artists and, like, celebrities whose innovations are, like, little behaviors that people are supposed to think is cool that are so easy to imitate, of course, don't like imitation because they're really not—they haven't really produced anything real that is fundamental to us, our lives and proving, and so they're very protective of their coolness. But in sports, 
what is good is determined by what makes you win. It is a very straightforward and immediate statement about what's good and what's not good. And so in sports, every innovation is imitated immediately. And so when Michael Jordan became the best basketball player in the NBA, younger Kobe Bryant coming up saw that, saw the innovations in Michael Jordan's game and copied them exactly and ruthlessly to the point where later they became friends. And he'd like text him and call him about stuff in his game. I watched some of the videos because there's videos on YouTube where you can watch um, Kobe and Jordan and it like overlays them and they look exactly the same doing a bunch of moves. And I was watching some of those. I was like, you could have made that video with anybody. These are all standard basketball moves. I even do some of these moves with less effectively, right? But the, the point is, that's the point. The point is, is that everybody imitated them because Michael Jordan created a true innovation or he saw them in somebody else who wasn't doing them as effectively and used them and he popularized the innovation. And then every basketball player in my generation and subsequent generations have copied and imitated those and the entire game's capacity has risen so that now it's basically boring to watch professional basketball. I'm just kidding. That's not in the Bible. But the point is, is that sports immediately metabolizes innovation because all that matters is winning, right? And people who want to win and aren't playing ga social games imitate because they know imitation is the quickest, most ruthless, most straightforward, most effective means by which to improve and to be formed in the direction that you want to go. Now, um, one of the things that's happened over the years is there's been a lot of research in all kinds of different sciences that have sort of come back to this idea that, oh wait, everything revolves around imitation that we know. For example, a bunch of neurological brain studies has demonstrated that if you watch somebody doing a physical movement that you're not highly familiar with, that causes you to pay attention to it, the part of your brain that's stimulated is the part of your brain that moves that part of the body. So if somebody moves their head in a way or their arm in a way that you're not, you're like, oh, that's interesting. The way your mind works is it accesses the part of your brain that controls your arms. The assumption being so that that information kind of gets logged in the place where you control your arms because you might want to imitate that because that's a new movement you're not familiar with, right? Um, it's similar with robots. If you, um, in AI right now, when people are trying to figure out how the new robots should function, they're, they're beyond like putting a program for a movement. They're like, we need to come up with a program, and this is, this is common in their, their magazines and journals and stuff. We're like, we need to come up with a, with a thing so that our robots can see something else happening and then imitate it. The next huge leap forward to make robots capable of doing what humans can do is to make them imitators. Because imitation is the most effective, most fundamental, most helpful means of development. Same thing is true with babies. Um, if you talk to my four children, they will tell you that as a parent, I talk a lot. I probably talk to them more than I should. Probably a lot more than I should. I maybe have told them 10,000 things each about life. Right? That's a lot of things. Uh, early childhood researchers now believe that somewhere between two and 300,000 things are learned by kids in their first three to four years, almost all of those then being imitation and experimentation in imitation based on their observations of the examples in their life. So the most active parent verbally, and, I'm, and uh, the things that we say as parents are integral to our kids' development, but not as integral 
as our actions, our behaviors, our responses, the things that our kids are seeing in our example, and then experimenting with an imitation and seeing how people around them react, learning incredibly complex rules of how people relate and what behaviors are okay and which ones aren't okay, and how do you get ahead and how do you grow and how do you do this and how do you do that. All these sorts of things are fundamental to human development, and they almost all come through observation of examples and experimentation with imitation ourselves. This is true in economics. People think, you know, Thomas Edison just like, he was so brilliant. He was like in his little lab thingy, and he came up with a light bulb. Not really true. Not really true. Um, uh, there's a, a British guy in the House of Lords whose name I can't think of. It's something. It's in my notes here. Matt Ridley, who is an author and um, member of the British House of Lords, he talks about how simultaneously somewhere between five and eight people were inventing the light bulb at the same time. Because— Everybody was imitating the innovations that had just happened. So people had been imitating different filaments for years, and people had been imitating different ways of blowing glass into different shapes for a number of years, and, and ways in which you could have conductive electricity, and how you could generate electricity, and how all those things came together. And as those—every time an innovation was created, guess what happened? Everyone copies it. Everyone copies it. So that Everybody is poised for the next innovation. Think about this economically. Anytime a business, like if Target does something that is a true innovation for consumers, like, like curbside pickup, who would have thought we'd ever want to do that, right? So curbside pickup, great for moms who don't want to take kids out of seats or whatever, right? And they start doing it, what's going to happen? We can't really patent that, right? So what happens? Everybody starts doing it. So one person makes an innovation in business, but since business is, is competitive, right? The minute they recognize it's a true innovation, everybody imitates it. What that means now is that now everybody has gone up to that level, and now everybody is poised to make the next innovation, not just Target. Right? Because, because the new growths are metabolized into the system. Everybody imitates them because they're clearly steps forward. Now we're all ready, and the new idea could come from anywhere. It might not come from Target. It might come over here. But guess what Target's going to do the minute that comes out? They're going to imitate it just like everybody else because people imitate what they know is valuable and it's the most efficient and effective way to learn, apply, and be transformed in anything. Same thing with success. Like if you know people who are successful, they may look on the outside like a self-made person. They're not. Most of those people, if you say, how did you get here? They will name names if they're being humble and honest. A parent, their first boss, a professor— Somebody who they didn't just learn verbally from, but they imitated personally. In fact, one of the things that um, I wish I could have changed about my life is I never really had a ministry mentor from early on all the way through. It's one of the reasons why High Point is a teaching church, why we spend tens of thousands of dollars on interns and pastoral fellows and trying to train young people going into ministry. We, we do that because of my negative experience of not having somebody helping me mature faster. And hundreds, if not thousands of people have been affected negatively by that for me not growing as far or going as far as I could have because I didn't have someone far enough ahead of me to imitate over a long period of time. It's incredibly important. It's fundamental to how we should see ourselves. And it's fundamental, it turns out, to our faith. For example, if you look at—so, but we don't want to agree with that, right? So like— I could say all this about imitation, then I could say somebody's like, oh, well, I just came to Jesus, or I'm young, and I'm trying to sort out my life. What should I do? And my first thing is, because imitation is fundamental, I say, you know what you should do? You should look for somebody whose faith is strong, that you respect based on what the Bible says, 
and you should form a relationship of them, with them of teaching and imitation. Where they tell you stuff, and where you see them live, and where you imitate them and hear their teaching. And people don't like that idea. They're like, I'm not going to imitate somebody that sounds so facile, so infantile. Well, it's also fundamentally human, and at the center of Christian faith, and at the center of how God does change people, right? Like, if you actually look and work this through the scriptures, it's everywhere, right? We're made in the image of God, and we're to be formed in godliness. What's that mean? To imitate God and be like God in the ways we can and are made to be, which is in our, in our actions and what we pursue, and in our ethics and beliefs and what we believe and how we live our lives. God gives the law to the Jewish people so that they would be able to imitate him. It was a kind of incarnation of himself, a revelation of what he is like into their cultural context so they, they could start to imitate him. Why faith? Why is faith fundamental to salvation? Well, faith is fundamental to salvation because you can't imitate someone you don't trust. So faith is not just integral to us being forgiven of our sins. Faith is integral to us trusting God entirely and therefore allowing him to speak in and be our example and so form us as his imitators. Romans 8, 28 and 29 says, All things work for the good of those who God is called, who are called, love God and are called according to his purpose. Right? Why? It says in verse 29, Because those who he's called and saved, he is conforming to the likeness of his son. What does that mean? He's working in them through their imitation of Jesus to become just like him by imitating Jesus, and then therefore then being an example to others who are trying to be imitators of Jesus. John 15, it says, somebody says, show us the Father to Jesus. Philip says, show us the Father. And Jesus says, haven't you seen me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I.e., if the goal of the human person, when they've been brought to faith by the Holy Spirit, is to want to imitate the Father in, by means of the image of God that's in us, how does that happen? It happens through the incarnation of the perfect humanity in the Son, Jesus Christ, so that he could be known and imitated, both in the inscripturation of his life, the imitation of him, and in this following of disciples that is passed down for 2,000 years and hundreds of generations, such that we can imitate Christ by imitating those who have imitated Christ and are our examples. The whole concept of disciple means teacher and learner relationship in which one learns from and imitates his teacher, which is, of course, the whole mission to go make disciples. That is, make imitators of Jesus who believe and entrust him and are reconciled to him and then imitate him in godliness. In the criteria for eldership in the church, who should lead the church? The whole list in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1 for who should lead the church is all godliness. It's all the person looks like and imitates Jesus in their character, holistically in their life. Therefore, make those people in charge of the church. Not the good preachers, not the handsome or pretty people, not the wealthy people. There's no reference to power. It's all godliness. Put them in charge. Why call them elders? Well, probably because they're older and more experienced, and the younger people walking through life would do good to imitate what is good in their best elders. You see, the Bible, the Christian faith, everything Jesus did, and all that happens in the church that he's created flows in and out of this idea of example and imitation. If you don't understand that, then you will be captured by pride in such a way as to isolate yourself from the way God changes you, and you will not benefit from it. And the costs are 
enormous. So therefore, our work as believers, what we're doing is imitating Jesus. And, but we have, we, nobody gets to hang with Jesus. Like, you can have a quiet time and say, I'm, I'm hanging out with God. This is my God hangout time. But it's not like hanging out with your friends. Like, you, you know that there's a difference in the, the, the way God is imminent. God is spiritually imminent, but he is not psychologically imminent in a way that you can interact like another person when you're talking with them. And he's done this intentionally to force you towards other people you're supposed to imitate and grow from. They're in your life. It's very rare that God does not supply someone like that. And one of the things that Paul says is so remarkable about this church is that in a very short time, right, I say in the, in the podcast about, in, in the introduction to First Thessalonians, he's only there about a month. He's only with them about a month. Can you imagine that? There's no churches in the city anywhere. You hear about this guy, Paul. You go to this synagogue. You hear him preach about Jesus. You go to this guy, Jason's house. You meet there for a month. And that's it. That's all the spiritual leadership you get from someone that's competent like this for a while. Then from there, you've just got each other. All of you who've gotten about a month of Christianity down. Can you imagine that? In a place where they're dragging you into court, clearly killing some people, doing enormous damage to your public reputation. There's a lot of affliction that's coming in from people resisting the message and attacking you. You've only got a month, and yet, he says, you, you realized when you came to believe that it was so important that you imitate us, that you imitated us for a month. And that was enough for you to get the pattern, the structure, to understand what it meant to— face affliction, and yet receive the joy of the gospel, and to live it out with joy, and to know it in joy, and therefore to endure all afflictions, and to do so thriving in a faith that works, a love that labors, and a hope that endures. <clears throat> all right. Let's look at just one more verse this morning. We're just going to do my, the introduction and the conclusion of my sermon this morning, okay? Look at verse 6. I'm sorry, no, look at start, verse 4. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. Okay. So what is he, what's he saying? You see, there's this very fine line in Christian faith in what we sometimes call assurance, and its relationship to what we call perseverance, right? What First Thessalonians says and the rest of the New Testament say is that in order to be saved, our faith has to persevere to the end. If you say at one point you believe in Jesus, and then you actionally or personally repudiate that belief, there is no New Testament hope that you are still saved, other than the, in the extreme, unexpected grace of God. Faith has to persevere to prove true and real. And so the question is, how do you help somebody in affliction, in difficulty in their life, recognizing that they have to persevere to be ultimately saved? What do you do? Because if you say, you've got to make it to the end to be saved, so therefore labor and work and toil and you can make it, maybe, right? That's very discouraging. But if you say you accepted Jesus, 
You're saved. That's it. No matter what happens, no matter what you do, whether you persevere or not, none of that matters. You're going to heaven. That's all there is to it. That's very—well, psychologically speaking, that's very destructive to human effort and vigilance and clarity and focus. Right? You, you tell a kid they're great at something, they stop trying half the time. So how do you— how do you focus somebody to be vigilant and energetic in their perseverance, but help them know that if they persevere, and in the work of persevering, it's all by grace. It's all by God helping and acting and working. And what they did experience here of salvation is real and carrying them to the end. Right? And the answer here is that Paul keeps pointing them to what you might call evidence of grace, what Christians have called evidence of grace. Right? Because if you, if you want to know whether or not God has redeemed you and will ultimately redeem you in salvation, right? There's two questions you can ask. If you haven't come to conversion yet, right? Believing in Jesus and, and becoming his imitator and counting your sin as lost and changing your mind. If you haven't done that, then the answer is, if you're like, can I be saved? The answer is yes. You've got to be converted. You have to put aside your wrong beliefs and your bigotries and point towards the one who has persuaded you into warranted belief and trust, and you put your faith in Christ, and he gives you the gift of salvation. Have you done that? And if the answer is no, then the answer is you are not saved. Like, you're, you have not answered the call of God for your redemption and reconciliation. You need to do that, right? But if you've come to him and you're like, okay, so I, I do confess Jesus. Am I, does that mean I'm saved? Does that mean that that's it? The answer is, well, if your faith is real, because the Bible speaks a lot about delusionary belief in faith, in which nothing happens. There's no godliness. There's no real faith. In Matthew 7, it says, Jesus will say to a number of people who say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? He says, he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. So there is a strong component in the entire New Testament of delusional faith that doesn't save and that in fact damns. How do you, how do you get past that? How do you know if your faith is real or not? And the answer is, the evidence of grace. Is there evidence that God is operative? Well, what is that evidence? Right? And see, Paul, all through the book of 1 Thessalonians, if you read it this week with that in mind, you'll see it everywhere. Verse 2, or verse 3. We've been watching you. And we see in your faith a work. It's, a, it's an operating faith. It's a working faith. It's a real faith. We see in your love labor a self-forgetfulness in your, in your toil to serve others. It's real love, right? And your hope is motivational of endurance. Like the hope that you have is real because when it comes to quitting or enduring, you endure. And so what that means is that your hope is real. And if your faith is real and your love is real and your hope is real, your your, your whole faith is real. You're saved. There's the grace of God working. He says, for— Right now he gives more evidence, but he does it in the past. He says, for, don't you see, when we came to you, we know that you're elect or called of God because when we spoke, it wasn't just words that like fell to the ground. It did nothing to penetrate your conscience or your mind. What happened was when we spoke, the power of God showed up. And there was power and there was the work of the Holy Spirit. And the, the main evidence of that was conviction that your heart was pierced with the persuasive, warranted truth of God that you should turn to his Christ, that you should turn from your sins, you should leave behind 
dead idols and turn to the living and true God and give your whole life to him. And you are moved by that. And the fact that as a sinner, you are moved by the truth. We saw the power of God operating, which means the grace of God is operative in you. That means it's real, right? And then he says, and look, what ha- look what's happened since then, right? We go to places to preach the gospel. They already know it. We go planning to tell the story about you, these people God is really working in. We get there and they're like, oh, we know about the Thessalonians. He's like, and not just in your state, Macedonia, and not just in the neighboring state of Achaia, but everywhere. We go to Turkey and we go to Southern Europe and we go to North Africa. We go to all kinds of places and they already know about you. They know about your faith and they know about your sufferings and they know that in your sufferings you have joy in Christ. Your hearts are filled with worship. They see the this clarity of your conversion. They see the depth of your joy in worship. They see the imitation of your discipleship. And they see that your faith in word and deed ring forward everywhere in the witness of the gospel. He's like, don't you see? Be assured. The grace of God is working in you, but be a participant with it all the more. Imitate Christ by imitating his examples all the more. To where he gets to chapters 4 and 5, and he talks about, we're not children of the darkness who don't know a thief is coming, who get drunk and get lazy. We're vigilant and clear children of the light. We know what is before us to do. And that wasn't just true of the Thessalonians. That's true of us. All of that, without change of time, is exactly true for you this minute. This minute. And so, our assurance comes from either our conversion to Christ, our accepting of him as our Savior and Lord, and I'll talk more about that next week, or our walking in the assurance of the evidences of grace, that as we walk in them, they fill us with joy and certainty that the faith that God brought in us is real, that he's operating, he operated then in bringing conviction, He operated in our transformation. He's operating in faith, hope, and love coming out of us. And he's operating in the actions of grace coming out of our lives. And therefore, we can imitate Christ and the examples Christ has given us more and more. And in doing so, God fills our hearts with assurance and through it, our lives with endurance. And not just a fall over the finish line and puke, but a thriving virile, powerful, courageous, flourishing endurance. And the power of that same Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God, as we get ready to um, take a moment to give ourselves in worship to you through song again and prayer, and as we think about questions that we would ask related to this content, and as we try to respond with real piety and faith and humility to the words of the scriptures in these ten verses— We pray that you would work in us by the power of the Spirit. We pray that there would be power. We pray that there would be conviction in us, that you would show us where we don't want to imitate you, where you'd show us where we've rejected your calling to imitate those you've given us, our our attitude about the local church, our—the weakness of our joy in these days, whether or not we have been converted or whether or not we just—we just said something one time. And Father, I pray for, especially for those who, who know and feel right now that thing I spoke of, conviction that the scriptures talk about. 
a conviction. I pray that you'd give them the courage to answer, the strength to answer it right now. To put their faith in you for the first time. To turn to you fully rather than just partially. To open their hearts entirely to the work of your spirit in their conscience. And the opening of their lives to imitate those who are worth imitating. Pray in Jesus' name.